Friends, if you would please turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. We're going to continue our series in Philippians this morning, our penultimate sermon on Philippians. We're near the finish line now. And so we're going to look at chapter 4, beginning in verse 10. And if you would, uh, lurk there with me as I read uh, these few verses for us. Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. I rejoice in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. And in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray now that by your spirit, you would illuminate your word to us. Uh, grant us the eyes to see, the ears to hear, and, their heart, and the hearts to receive and store up your word preached to us. Uh, please bless us now at this time together. Uh, may everything that I say, may all the, uh, everything that we uh, do this morning, may it all be uh, holy and pleasing in your sight. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, some, sermons, um, some sermons are easier to preach than others, and uh, this is one of the others uh, this morning. Uh, I've been so convicted uh, studying this week of just how um, discontent I am at times and in various areas of my life. And uh, this has been a very convicting uh, sermon. And so I'm preaching this morning not from an area of strength, but certainly from my weakness and trusting that uh, God will be uh, my strength in, in this time together. We know contentment is a very hard thing to come by, and it's something we, we can all struggle with. Uh, last week, Paul talked about Uh, how uh, we're not to be anxious in anything, uh, but the Lord is at hand and we're to trust in Him. And and here, in this passage, he he backs up what he's saying, what he said last week. And and he tells us that he's learned contentment in every situation. But thankfully, he gives us some instructions on how we can achieve the same kind of, of contentment. The world is full of its own suggestions on how to be content, how to find peace, But we have Scripture's infallible rule, the only rule for our faith in life. I was reminded um, of this uh, just funny headline. This was from years ago, and it's just stuck with me. I find it funny. But there's a a headline. It was for an article uh, about Oprah. And uh, in the article, the headline read, Oprah reveals how she manages to stay stress-free at 64. All right, so that's the headline. And then someone, this is the reason you love the internet, someone commented, the, the, the highest comment on this post said, step one, have a billion dollars. <laughs> and that's how the world views contentment. And certainly there, there's some peace that comes from financial stability, but how can you be stress-free with, without anxiety, with, with uh, be completely content in life? Well, the world would tell us, well, it must be that you need more. You need to have more. You need to have more money. You need to have a bigger house or a better job or, or, um, or whatever it might be. 
We need, to, we need to gain. We need to keep getting more and more. The more things I have, the more satisfied, the more content I will be. But the Bible gives us a different way. And not only a, not only a better way, but actually the only true way that we can have and we can find contentment. But before we get there, we need to consider the context of the section. So Paul says that he rejoiced. He says, I rejoiced that now at length you have revived your concern for me. Their, their concern for Paul never went away, but they did not have uh, the, the opportunity to support him like they once did. They had, they had stopped supporting Paul financially. They had stopped for some reason, but, but now they're able to pick it back up again. And so he says, you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. So they have, they've revived this concern, this, this giving to him again. Uh, we know less about this situation than we'd like. And what we do know about it, about this situation Paul's in and his ministry and uh, his uh, ministry in Macedonia, the support that he receives, we, we learn more about that in the next section. So we're going to save most of that for next week. But what we can say today is that Paul's not rebuking the Philippians here. He was not rebuking them, but rather he's reminding them of, of what was, was, was true regarding this situation. You, you no longer had the opportunity, but now you have it again. And he's going to use this as a teaching opportunity for them. It was a good thing. It's a good thing that the Philippians are again contributing financially to Paul's ministry. That, that's, a, that's a good thing. It was good to support him. But he wants to make sure that they know that it was not out of his needs. Because he's learned, he's learned from Christ how to be content in every situation. So we get verse 11, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. No matter what situation I'm in, I'm able to be content. That is what Paul wants them to understand. That's the mystery of Christian contentment. And so Christian contentment, that's what we want to consider today. And we're going to highlight three different aspects of contentment that Paul mentions in these verses. So the first thing we'll see is that contentment is something that needs to be learned. It is something that's possible, but it needs to be learned. The second thing is that contentment is a mystery. There's a secretness about it. And third, that true contentment is always anchored in Christ. That's what it means to be content in Christ. Those are the three things, so we'll look at those in order. The first is that contentment is something that is learned. It is possible. We need to acknowledge that right up front. It is possible, but it does take some effort. It does need to be, be learned. The book on Christian contentment was written by Jeremiah Burroughs, English Puritan, born at the turn of the 17th century. He played an important role in the uh, Westminster Assembly that would go on to write the doctrinal standards of our church, of the Presbyterian churches, uh, though he actually would die before the work was completed, but he played an important part in that. But he wrote the book on contentment, the rare jewel of Christian contentment. That book is a long meditation on our verse here, Chapter 4, verse 11, that I've learned in whatever situation I'm in to be content. And according to Burroughs, the point of this passage is to promote the duty of every Christian, 
which is the, the quieting and comforting the hearts of God's people under the troubles and changes they meet with in these heart-shaking times. That's the point. And you can see why it's such a timeless book. How are we going to respond in our heart-shaking times? Sometimes they're, they're always heart-shaking. They're, there's always affliction. There's always uh, needs present. Uh, what are we going to do? How will we meet these, these afflictions and these needs and, and, and the, the world in which we live? Will we meet it with anxiety? Will we have a mad rush to, to gain more and more and to, to uh, uh, get all of these things? Will we seek material gain? Or will we quiet ourselves before God? Will we freely submit to him and, and delight, truly delight, in whatever kind of life God is pleased to give us? He alone is, is wise. He alone is good. And if that's true, then the life that he gives us must be for our good as well. That's the lesson of contentment that needs to be learned, but it's a, it's a difficult lesson. I've been blessed, I've been challenged, encouraged, and convicted by, by Burroughs this week. And so if you've not read his book, I encourage you to go and read it. You can find it online, public domain, and be blessed and challenged and encouraged by it as well. But like Burroughs says, and like Paul says, contentment is learned. Twice Paul says, I have learned. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So if it is something that is learned... That must mean that it's something that doesn't come natural to us. It doesn't come easy. It ought to be the disposition of our hearts, but our, our natural tendency in this, in this fallen uh, state that we're in, we, we need to learn it. And so true contentment, it's, it's not simply putting on a brave face. And here I want to talk about what, what exactly do we mean by contentment. You know, it's not as easy as just putting on a calm demeanor. That's, that's too easy. If it was that easy, it wouldn't require any learning. But rather, to learn it is to go through the heart-level change that's required to achieve this true kind of contentment. It's an inward reality that needs to be learned and changed through God's grace. So at this point, I want to make sure we're all on the same page here. What, uh, when we talk about commitment as this heart-level change, what are we talking about? What do we mean? Contentment does not mean that we simply never acknowledge our situation whatsoever. That's not what contentment means. It does not mean that we try our best to ignore what truly is suffering in our lives. Rather, we, we do acknowledge it. We acknowledge our pains and our troubles as, as the crosses that they are. And God calls us, Jesus calls us to, to bear our cross and to follow after him. So it would not be true contentment if there were no afflictions that would challenge our contentment. And so we acknowledge those things. We, we feel the pain of them. Contentment is not opposed to that. Contentment also does not mean that we keep these things bottled up inside. That we ought never to share them with others or ever to bring them before God. 
but rather we, we do share those burdens with others and we, we certainly bring them before God in prayer. Being quiet and being humble before God does not mean being silent before him. We bring our cares and our petitions, all our desires and afflictions to God because he desires to hear them from us and, and he cares for us and he loves us. And so we, we bring them to him. We bring those afflictions and we, we pray, God, would you deliver this from me? And we bring them to, to others and we seek their counsel and their prayers as well. And contentment also does not mean that we sit on our hands and do nothing to remove or to change or to be delivered from whatever present situation that we're in. So that's, this is also something contentment does not mean. True, con- true contentment is not some kind of sanctified quitting that would say, well, this is just the life that God's given me. And that's it. That's not what we're saying. That's not what we're saying by contentment. Rather, we can, we ought to seek all lawful means to deliver ourselves from whatever situation we might be in that is, uh, that's not good, that, that is an affliction to us, that is a need that we have. So when we talk about the inward change that brings about true contentment, we're not saying that this means that we pretend our problems don't exist, that we never mention our problems or our desires or our wishes to others, or that we, uh, that we never try to do anything about it. That's not what we're saying. That's not the case. Rather, the lesson is in the attitude and in the frame of spirit with which we approach all of these concerns. In plenty and in want, Paul says he's able to rejoice in whatever our afflictions that would lead us away from being content in our pursuits to remedy those situations. We need to be humble. We need to rejoice in the Lord. And we need to seek uh, ways of, of fixing those areas that would not uh, result in us sinning against God. Let, let's unpack that a little bit more. That means that we bring our complaints to God. That's a good thing. We ought to do that. The Psalms are full of examples of that. But there's a way of doing that that does not sin against God. We do not murmur against God. That's what the Israelites did in, in, the, in, in the desert. We do not grumble. We do not murmur. But rather, we're open about our needs and our desires and our pains, and, and we, we bring them to the Lord, but we want our desires to be shaped along His desires. We want our wills to be molded into His wills, into His will, rather. We, we seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. And so we seek to remedy these situations in our, uh, as well, but... Um, but we know that being discontent in, in any situation does not mean uh, that we simply quit or, or let it be. So uh, being f- uh, discontent with our financial situation, as an example, does not mean necessarily, does not mean that we can't strive to, to work to, to make more, to be more financially secure. That, that's a good thing. It does mean, however, that we, we cannot cheat or steal or do anything that would be contrary to God's law in order to achieve that level of financial stability that we'd want to be in. You know, another great example of this is, is marriage. Marriages can be hard. Marriages can be tricky. B- 
being discontent in a marriage is, is not where we'd want to be, not where you'd want to be, but there's, there's ways that we can go about uh, trying to achieve more contentment that doesn't result in sinning against God. So being dis- discontent in a marriage does not mean you can sin against God and your spouse by, by trying to find the satisfaction or gratification from anyone or anything else that you should be finding in your spouse alone. But contentment doesn't mean that you just have to put up and that nothing will ever change. So the lesson we need to learn is that we put in the hard work that's necessary to get into a better financial situation, to to fix a broken or a hurting marriage, whatever it might be, whatever whatever you'd like to see change in your life, that's something that we can work at and we can strive to do. But at the same time, giving all of these things to the Lord and saying, not my will, but yours be done. Realizing that even if we were to fix everything and all of our desires in this life, if we were able to do that but not have Christ, we would still have nothing. If we do not have Christ, nothing else that we gain will truly matter. And that is the lesson of contentment that we must learn. And it's a difficult lesson because it's so mysterious in a lot of ways. And that leads us right into the next point, that this this lesson of contentment is is a mystery. We have to learn contentment. And we have to learn it because it is a mystery. Paul, Paul says that he learned the secret. That's what he says. And this is the only time this word is used in the New, in the New Testament. It's an interesting word, and in other places it it refers to the kind of uh, secretive initiation into some kind of uh, special group or uh, sometimes even a a cult practice. And so you're saying, oh, your Christianity is a cult, and that's not what I'm saying. Here's the big difference, the way Paul uses it. It's a secret, but it's an open secret. This secret is, is free to the world. The mystery comes from not being able to understand this secret apart from knowing Christ. It's free for the world to know, but the world doesn't understand because they don't understand the way of Christ. And here's why the world cannot understand it. The world cannot understand this secret of Christian contentment because in the first place, you gain contentment by subtraction, not addition. The world says you have to get more. You need more money. You need more things. You need whatever it might be. You need to gain self-satisfaction of your actualizing yourself. And the more, uh, the more responses and the more affirmation you receive, then you will find contentment. True Christian contentment, on the other hand, is gained by subtraction. It is the removing of your worldly cares and desires that makes you free in Christ. So listen to how Burroughs says it. He says, The way of contentment is not so much by adding to what we would have or to what uh, we already have, not by adding more to our condition, but rather by subtracting from our desires so as to make our desires and our circumstances even and equal. And by that he means not thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought. We need to have a right understanding of who God is 
And then we can understand who we are. And then our circumstances and our desires can be found on equal, equal footing. When we do that, only then can we remove and subtract our worldly desires and fit our present circumstances uh, and focus our minds on Christ. Uh, Calvin, he talks about this in the very beginning of his institutes. And he writes that until men recognize that they owe everything to God, that they are nourished by his fatherly care, that he is the author of their every good, that they should seek nothing beyond him, they will never yield him willing service. Nay, unless they establish their complete happiness in him, they will never give themselves truly and sincerely to him. See, our complete happiness needs to be found in him. And that happens by subtraction. Removing the desires and cares of the world so that we can see Christ truly for who he is and in doing so, seeing our need for him. Here's a very countercultural way to do that. Burroughs uses this example as well. Here's one way we can do that. That is to think about our sinfulness more. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure I've shared this story uh, before, but when I uh, worked at a desk job, I was telling one of my coworkers uh, that uh, I was joining the PCA, Presbyterian Church, and she said, Oh, you Presbyterians... You love talking about sin. You love talking so much about all this sin. And I was like, guilty, you know. But here's the point. And this likewise is a mystery of contentment. That a heart, a heart more burdened with sin is a heart that's less burdened with afflictions. The more we understand the burden of our own sins, the less burdens, the less our afflictions will be a burden to us. This is the perspective change that we need. The the prayer book, uh, Valley of Vision, a wonderful book with so many wonderful prayers that has this line in it. It says, my afflictions have been fewer than my sins. That is the secret to contentment. Realizing that my afflictions in this life have been fewer than my sins, has been fewer than I have deserved. What my sins deserved and what I have received instead, even with all the pain that's real, all the afflictions and struggles, those are real. All those things I'm presently going through, they are not at all equal. But I deserved much worse, and yet I serve a great and gracious God. This is what the world cannot understand about Christian contentment. And the world also cannot understand Christian contentment because it's a mystery and a secret in that the most content person in the world is also the least satisfied person in the world. This is part of the mystery as well. The Christian can be be content with, with much or with little. You know, Paul says that he uh, can be brought low and he can also abound. He, he says to his protege Timothy, with food and clothing, with, this, with these things we will be content. That is enough. Because we have the riches of Christ. The Christian has the pearl of great price. He has abundant life in his precious Savior. So nothing else in the world could compare to that. 
And he's content to leave everything else behind if it means gaining Christ. And so the Christian who's content in this life, he can pray, Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire beside you. There's nothing on earth that compares that would bring me the satisfaction that I alone can have in you. There's nothing. He is content in Christ. But he's also the most unsatisfied person in the world because all of the world's riches could never satisfy him apart from Christ. And he will not ever truly be satisfied until he is with Christ face to face. To live as Christ, Paul says, and to die is gain. It would be far better for me to depart so that I could be with Christ. I will not be satisfied until I am with him. The secret to contentment is understanding that the Christian whose heart is made new by God will never be satisfied if he gained the wealth of the whole world but did not have God. And so the mystery of this contentment is that the Christian gains by subtracting what the world tells him he needs and will not be satisfied with anything the world has to offer unless he first has Christ. And that leads us to the final thing we see is that contentment is always and must be anchored in Christ. All right, here it is. This is the most, perhaps the most, maybe second place, most taken out of context verse in all of Scripture. You've, you've heard it. You've seen it taken out of context. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. All right, time for a quick grammar lesson. Kids, I'm sorry. You, it's June. You've already got out of school, and now your parents brought you to church, and so now you have another, you have a grammar lesson. I'm sorry. Here's, here's the lesson. All does not mean all. All right, that's it. Short and sweet. All does not mean all. What does Paul mean by all things? Does he mean every single possible thing that ever has or ever will exist? That Paul could go and compete and succeed in the Olympic events uh, down the street in Rome? Or that if Paul prayed hard enough, God would strengthen him enough to be able to bend the bars of the jail cell uh, like a Samson and that he'd be able to escape. No, the kind of strength that God gives to his people is much less flashy than that. It is the strength to endure affliction and have contentment with joy. That's the strength. The word all is limited by the context. Paul's referring to every and all circumstances in his life. In all of life's conditions, rich or poor, hungry or full, abounding or brought low, everywhere in between, in all of those situations, he has the ability, through Christ who strengthens him, to have contentment. There's not strength promised that Paul or that you or I, that we'd achieve our goals and desires in this life. That's not the strength that God promises to us. But there is strength to conform our goals and our desires and our life to Christ. That's what Christ strengthens us to do. And do not miss this, this important point, that true contentment, can only be laid upon the foundation 
of Christ. That's what we must see here. I can do all things through Him, through Christ who strengthens me. He must be the object of our desires. When our wills are molded and shaped and made like His will, that's where we find contentment. That is the lesson. That that is the mystery. It is that that self-denial and submission to Christ is where contentment is found. When He becomes our strength and when He becomes our portion forever. And so we must not buy into the lies of the world that would say we need to seek more and more. The lie of the world that would say having more will bring contentment. You know, a billion dollars would bring a lot of financial stability to to all of us, but it would not actually bring peace of mind. It would not actually bring true contentment. That's only found in Christ. There are countless stories we we can see that bear out this truth. Uh, By worldly standards, there are some people who have it all, who have endless wealth, But that does not bring true contentment. That does not bring the peace that they need in their lives. Rather, contentment is found in Christ alone. He is far greater than all the world's riches. He is more valuable than silver and gold. Psalm 4, 7, You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. Christ alone can put that joy in your heart that joy that you seek. He alone can bring peace in your life. He alone is where we find contentment. So let's pray to him now. Christ Jesus, we confess that when we should have been content in you, we grumbled in our present condition. We've bought into the lies of the world that say that Uh, We can have true peace only when we have more. But we know this is a false bill of goods. Renew our minds once again that we would see clearly and give us a clear apprehension of our sin that we might find our Savior all the more precious, all the more lovely. Let us not be content in anything or anyone else than having you and you alone. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.